In a moment, I want us to pray just for a couple of things before we open the word. But as we are a learning community and we are seeking to make disciples of all the nations, I would like to ask the children for a moment to tell me, I'm going to read a couple of things and I want you to tell me what I'm talking about. Number one, consider Jesus. Number two, Jesus was faithful in all God's house as a son. Anyone have an answer? Number three, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. What does that have to do with anything that happened here today? The sermon from this morning. Very good. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And then finally, we are Jesus what? We're Jesus' house. That's right. Probably one of the worst things we could ever do is come and hear the word and then never talk about it again. We denigrate it. But we, we celebrate, we honor the preaching of the word when we think about it. Consider Jesus. Jesus was faithful in all God's house as a son. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And we are Jesus' house. Yes. Thank you. Just a couple of things before we read the word. I'd like us to remember in prayer as we go once again to the Lord asking for his help to remember Scott and Marcia's little granddaughter, Reagan Bartley, uh, daughter of Matt and Lydia Bartley, still at Prisma. And then our own Josh Johnston, whose maternal grandmother, Mrs. Dottie, I think it's St. Aubin from Massachusetts, uh, Lori Johnston's mother. So Josh is, I think, flying up there today with his brother from Atlanta. Let's, let's remember these as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the faithful son, that though Moses was faithful in all your house as a servant, yet it was your son who's described as faithful over all your house as a son. And we exult tonight. We are glad. We have joy that you gave your son, that your son offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and you accepted it. Tonight we want to remember Scott and Marcia's little granddaughter, Reagan. I know loved by so many and we pray that you would uphold Matt and Lydia as they care for their daughter, we pray that you might be pleased to allow little Reagan to fully recover. And we pray that in this great trial of an unknown length, that you would help Matt and Lydia to draw near to you and to each other. We pray that they would give energy and time to their firstborn, to Riley, and I pray with gratitude for their church family and just pray that uh, you would surround them with a sense of your mercy and amazing peace, a peace that surpasses knowledge. And we pray that they would know your nearness. We also pray for Josh and his siblings and for Mrs. Johnston as they mourn uh, Miss Dottie up there in Massachusetts and her death. And we pray Father, that for her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that 
you would use this as a reminder of the brevity of life and of a need, of our need to be right with you. And we pray, as you said, it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. We pray that this would serve as a signpost to our need to be right with you, to make sure that we're in the faith. And I pray that, that, that for Josh and his siblings and for all of Mrs. St. Albans' children, that there would be comfort and encouragement in this hour. We pray for that. Be with us now as we open the word. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need the spirit's help to illumine to our hearts that word that he inspired. And we pray that you'd preserve this and transform us by it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me to Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 through 31. And we'll read actually through verse 9 of the following chapter. This will ultimately be a two-part sermon, both tonight and then in a future date. I'm thinking two weeks uh, from tonight or three weeks from from today, it, on the two weeks from now, on that weekend of uh, on that Lord's Day, March fifth, we're going to have a focus on what role we might play in the uh, advance of the gospel by serving as hosts here at Grace Baptist Church Taylor's for I think what will uh, amount to our eighth General Assembly total uh, as a network. So our first was in November. 2016 here and then in September. In fact, just seven months from yesterday, the GA begins. So we now have six months, 364, or 29 days to the GA. It's coming. But let's look now at Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear that cry or their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless." If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 
You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now to chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall, or yes, fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Let's see here in verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent. Let's see, this might be the same verse. Verse 8, excuse me here for a minute. And you shall, not, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You shall know the heart, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, I'm struggling here with my iPad, but we'll be okay. So I love technology when it, when it works, and for some reason, it's not going to page two. Hmm. Okay, well, just give me a second here. There we go. Good, thank you. Well, today at about 3 o'clock, there was a pounding behind our house. I'd like to introduce this with a, a real live example. Because we, when we think about justice and how difficult it is to achieve, sometimes it's illustrated by the simplicity of things uh, that are easy to achieve. Well, and I looked out back, and there were three small children from our, the, in our cul-de-sac, and they were pounding on the lattice at the back of, um, that surrounds the, uh, our screen porch. And I asked, I opened the door and I said, hey guys, what are you doing? We're trying to capture a rabbit. And they could see a rabbit that apparently lives under our screen and porch. And they could see this rabbit. And they had a white bucket. And there were three little children in a white bucket. And they were endeavoring to think how they could get through the lattice, or they could entice this rabbit out of the lattice that they could capture it. And one of them said, Mr. Hatfield, do you have a carrot? 
I said, honey, I do meet me at the front of the house. And I went in, in the refrigerator, I took a carrot, I broke it in half and thought, here's a simple way to make a child happy and perhaps it could aid in the capture of this rabbit. And so I gave a half a carrot. So honey, if you see a half a carrot in the bag of carrots, you'll understand that was contributed to a worthy cause in the cul-de-sac, okay? The point is that sometimes giving a carrot is far easier than achieving justice. So what do you think when you hear this phrase, social justice, or even social justice warrior? Justice is not an uncommon word in our Bibles. In fact, you find this word in the ESV some 135 times. All right, even Pastor Jamie was reading from Isaiah this morning, maybe 16 or 17 times in the book of Isaiah, you find it. And if you have an ESV, you no doubt have already noticed that the title for this portion of Scripture is Laws About Social Justice. Not inspired, but not unhelpful. Okay, not inspired, but not unhelpful. And the translation or editorial committees of the ESV provided that title right there before verse 16. But I think we need to acknowledge that we live in a world that has co-opted that phrase. They've hijacked it. They, more importantly, they've claimed for itself The reality of justice that is only reflected in God's character and found in his word. And so we may safely say that there is no true social justice apart from the God of the Bible, apart from the God of the gospel. And this is found only in his character. This is found only in his word and from that breathtaking display of both his justice and his mercy as they meet in this amazing holy intersection at the cross. And the first, that is his justice, is inscrutable. The second, that is his mercy, is really unfathomable. So the only way to truly do justice to social justice is to trust him with both the principles and the ultimate outcome of justice in this world and in his world. And so tonight what I'd like to do is lay a foundation for this topic generally and then address these verses between tonight and several weeks probably, I'm thinking, on uh, maybe the morning of the, of the 12th of March as we continue in the book of Exodus. So think of this, this doing justice to social justice as a two-part message or two-part sermon. There's a really simple outline, and kids, I think this will be helpful. I'm going to repeat it several times so you can get it. But as you think of this message, here it is. Number one, God cares. God cares. Number two, God cares about justice. God cares about or for justice. And number three, not only does God care, or God cares, not only does God care for, or God cares for justice, but God, thirdly, God cares 
for justice for his creation and his creatures as expressed in his word. This is not vigilante justice. This is the justice of the holy, high, and exalted, and lifted up God that even Isaiah had a vision of in Isaiah 6. The one we celebrate even by our hymn of the month, holy, holy, holy. So number one, God cares. It sounds simple, but it's true. Maybe you've had someone say, I care. I care for you. Maybe they've been trite when you've been in the middle of a trial and they've said, if there's anything you need, let me know. And you're really just wishing they'd invade your life with help and assistance that may, and show that they care. All right? Can you imagine sending an email to that person? In response to your offer to help, I'm requesting an expression of your care. But God cares. God, the triune God, is thinking, feeling, willing in his person. He's not inanimate matter, but he is the animate God who has all the qualities of personhood. Please do not reduce God to a series of propositional statements or theological assertions. He's the personal, knowable, creative God who has all these qualities, some which we share, communicable communicable attributes, some that we do not share, what we call incommunicable attributes. In fact, kids, you know some of these. We say God is omniscient. That is, he what? He knows all things. Sometimes you ask me, what did I eat for dinner Friday night? I can't remember. Maybe I know, but you'd have to spur my memory. We say he's what? Omnipresent. He's everywhere. You know that right now, if I took my iPhone, I could pin my location to an exact GPS set of coordinates. I'm only in one place, and so are you. But God is not only omniscient, knowing everything, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And moreover, his strong right arm, he's what? Omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Some of you know how much weight you can lift. You know how much weight you can lift in so many reps. But God's not limited by that. And any discussion of justice or social justice must begin with God, the personal, the knowable God who has these qualities of personhood, some communicable, some incommunicable. But they must begin with God, and especially the God who cares. He cares deeply. He's not created this whole world and everything in it, and then washed his hands of it. He's not decided to suppress all thought and care of the world that he's made through this divine fiat, or fiat, let there be and there was, let there be and there was. The very facts of creation The sequence and order and beauty of creation speak to a God who cares. 
Intrinsically from the Father speaking to the Spirit hovering over the waters to the Son's mediatorial role in creation. For even in our memory verse we cited a few moments ago for the month of February from Hebrews 1 we're told of the Son and of His agency. It was through Him that God created the world through whom also He created the world. And so the Bible speaks of a God who cares, whose passion for his own glory is juxtaposed with his passion to save a people like you and me for himself from the ravages of sin who will then be ravished with the love of the cross where justice and mercy meet. God cares. And these, that is, his passion for his own glory and his passion for a people who would sing the praises of that glory are not in conflict. So first, God cares. Second, God cares for justice. We come to the second point. It's this. He cares for justice, and he's not like us when we whine and say, that's not fair. Have any of you had a moment this week when you thought, that's not fair? Or you even said it? Did anyone have that? Can anyone acknowledge that? I see a hand. Thank you, young man. I won't name you. It's a brave young man. That's not fair. You're thinking it. And we do it in a whiny way most of the time. But God sees what is not right and what is not fair and what is not just, and he makes it right. But it's different than the way we might handle it. His sense of justice is not simply ignoring and like a little monkey, see no evil, hear no evil, kind of just suppresses the knowledge of what's wrong in calling that justice. Or on the other end, this vigilante, out-of-control justice, his is a holy justice. It's different than ours. But then again, he's God and we're not. And it's an article of faith, brothers and sisters, in the Christian life. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, You face this and even the difficulty of it. And Psalm 13 and Psalm 73 express this. And that is an article of faith in the Christian life is to accept that God's care for and his sense of justice will look different than if we ourselves were running the show. If we had the steering wheel of the wheel of justice in our hands. Does that make sense? Okay. Maybe sometimes it looks like you don't even express it. You're thinking, well, God, I surely would have handled that differently. So what I mean by that? I mean both the character of God's justice and the timing of that justice. Why else does David lament four times In the first two verses of Psalm 13, and he asks, how long, O Lord? Even D.A. Carson, based on that psalm alone, 
those five or six verses, wrote a book on dealing with suffering and justice. Either David believed the Lord had forgotten him, or he was pained with the process of waiting. Pure agony, like dry heave agony of wondering, God, where are you in meeting out fair justice? But yet the whole Bible affirms he is a just God. He loves justice. Just behind the passage that Pastor Jamie quoted from this morning in Isaiah is verse 8. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them. Let me just look at this for a minute. I hate, I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. See how these two things come together here. God's making covenant with his people as the justice-loving God. And I want to encourage you right here, literally step up, grab your binoculars anytime God says, I love this or I hate that. Peer in as closely as you can. You see, part and parcel with Jesus as God's chosen servant from Isaiah 42 through the end of the book, through verse 66, is a love for and, it's a, and a commitment to justice. It's why Matthew in his gospel, he quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. He does this in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim what? Justice to the Gentiles. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see, God cares for justice. Not only does God care, but he cares for justice. And it's incompatible like oil and water with God's nature to remain in neutral and unmoved in the face of injustice. And if we can say that God will ultimately, in his time and in his wisdom, make all wrongs right, we may say also with confidence to those who have suffered justice, injustice and wrong, that there is no earthly sorrow that heaven will not heal. There is no earthly sorrow that God in heaven will not ultimately heal for the Christian. That is true for his people as those who inherit life and hope in Christ as the one who is faithful over all God's house as a son. Otherwise, Romans 8 doesn't make sense. Because Romans 8 is saying, as surely as you could not pry a baby 
from his or her mother's breast, God is saying, you, nothing, no one can pull you and take you away and rip you from my love for you in Christ Jesus. That's the basis, ultimately, for why we may trust God's justice. Well, thirdly, not only does God care, not only does God care for justice, but God cares for justice for his creation is expressed in his word, right? So we expand from God cares, God cares for justice, to that he cares for justice for his creation and his creatures as expressed in his word. And we're going to focus now in a few minutes on our sermon text from Exodus twenty-two sixteen through 23, 9. We'll get it deeper into the detail probably in three weeks, I think on the morning of March 13th or 12th. And now we're in that portion of law we call judicial or civil. I want to just two reminders from two weeks ago tonight. Remember that in the Old Testament, there are three types of law. Kids, do you remember these? Anyone? Moral, civil, and what? Ceremonial, okay? Another word for civil is judicial. That makes you think of judge or judgment or even the word justice, all right? It's the threefold division of the law. The moral law is primary, permanent, and abiding, The civil law is temporary, intended for Israel as a theocracy, and so what we would say is it it was a temporary jurisprudence, a model jurisprudence, but temporary nonetheless. And then finally, the ceremonial law was anticipatory. And in our own confession, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, In chapter 19, paragraph 4, it says this, of the judicial and civil laws. It says, to Israel, he, that is God, also gave various judicial laws, which seized at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. And so when we see a practice, what we're looking for is the principle so that we see how, what is the enduring principle that's connected to a portion of law, to what we would say a rule, 21.1. Okay, that's what we're looking for. So God's care, God's concerns for justice for his creation and his creatures is expressed or found In his word. And it's not to say that the laws we have here are exhaustive. They do not anticipate or specifically address every possible situation. But they do provide this comprehensive system of general principles that may be applied specifically to every realm of life. For example, the general principle is we can't close our eyes to our neighbor's property being in jeopardy. And the, 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 the story is, the idea is speaking of an ox that falls in a pit, or right, in a pit or in a well. Well, that doesn't mean if your neighbor's horse or their pig falls in a pit, 
that you get a free pass because look right there, it just says ought. It doesn't say horse or pig. So what we're looking for is a general principle to be applied to a variety of specific situations. And these laws, they revealed Yahweh's character as the Holy One of Israel. And so as we saw several weeks ago now, as we focus, these Israel's civil and judicial laws have their basis in Yahweh's moral law. Those 10 words that were spoken audibly by God and were inscribed by his own finger on the two tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. And most every commentator says there's a permanence then to that. It's different than these judicial laws that are, that are given beginning there at the, uh, the end um, or the beginning of chapter 21 and verse one, there's a difference there. The permanence of the moral law versus the civil and judicial by virtue of uh, God's finger writing them on the tablets of stone. And so as we look at this, remember from a couple of weeks ago, this is that portion of Exodus, chapters 19 through 24, that are summarized by the single word covenant. So you think of chapters 19 through 24, think covenant, or by this phrase, covenant, colon, a revelation of God's character. And so we, as we look at this, as we look at these 25 verses, we can ask these questions. What attribute or character quality of God is revealed here? What is it that we see of God? What is it that we're told about who and what God is? Is like. And then we can ask, how has one of the Ten Commandments or Ten Words served as the basis for a particular rule or statute? And I want to pause here and tell you this. If you can look in the back of the Trinity hymnal is the shorter catechism. But the larger catechism takes those Ten Commandments, the two tablets, identifying how we love God, this vertical relationship, how we love our neighbor horizontally, and it really gives the what does this commandment require and what does this commandment forbid. Very, very helpful if you can get your hands on the larger catechism, all right? But broadly, and I just want to look at four of our remaining minutes, I want you to note four basic categories in these 25 verses, broadly, broadly. Number one, and you'll see how as I, as I set these up, Israel as a nation was to be marked. So that is the header for all four of these. Israel as a nation was to be marked. Another word for marked is characterized. Kids, what is a quality that all snakes have? What do they do? They slither. All snakes are marked by the ability to slither. Okay? All right. And they do that fork tongue thing. Now, so as we think of these four, Israel as a nation was to be marked by, and here we go. Number one, four categories. Israel as a nation was to be marked by purity and fidelity 
in sexuality. And kids, that means that we as men and women, God has made men and women to get along and cooperate and relate in certain ways. And you don't need to imagine that. In fact, God has told us. Israel as a nation was to be marked by purity and fidelity and sexuality. You see that, and I'd like, this is what I want you to do. It's super duper helpful if you can open a real Bible. I know some of you have your Bible on your phone. I'm not saying that's not a real Bible, but I mean an actual paper Bible. It's helpful to see this in verses 16 and 17, and then in verse 19. And these are rooted in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And our sexuality is a gift from God is to find its expression exclusively. Now watch, parents, real quickly. Our, say this again, our sexuality as a gift from God is to find its expression exclusively in marriage, verses 16 and 17, and with persons, verse 19. Specifically, a male with a female, female with a male in marriage. Marriage and with persons. Marriage is not to be thought of apart from sexuality, nor sexuality apart from the covenant of marriage, a covenant of marriage between two persons. And that's the thrust of verse 16. Sex is not an inviolable mandate for marriage as though because two people have had sexual relations or even because a woman is is pregnant by virtue of that, that is not an inviolable mandate for marriage. But in ancient Israel, verses 16 and 17, the reality of a sexual relationship pointed to the value of marriage. We're going to go deeper on this in three weeks, but you get it. That's the point. That's why it says, he shall give that, that is the man, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Obviously, there's a contingency. Verse 17 addresses that. And I hesitate, moms and dads, to add any word to verse 19 for the sake of our children present tonight. Because it was Paul who wrote in Ephesians 5, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And surely that applies to the subject of Exodus 22 and verse 19. Well, secondly, not only is, was Israel as a nation to be marked by purity and fidelity, that is faithfulness in sexuality, but they were to be marked with purity and fidelity in Yahweh's worship, in Yahweh's worship. Look at verse 18, verse 20, and verses 28 through 31. And these comprise five distinct rules. By rules, it's that word, translated rules, in 21.1 from mishpatim. Mishpat, mishpatim, in plural, the rules, okay? Where the Lord says, now these are the rules. He says to Moses, these are the rules, mishpatim, that you shall set before them. 
And you might ask, why are these verses in this back and forth pattern with those addressing our sexuality, right? 16 and 17, sexuality. Verse 18, worship. 19, sexuality. Verse 20, worship. 21 is going to be with what we would typically think of social justice, right? Oppressing those who are vulnerable, who are weak. Why the back and forth? I'm not sure, but I'd like to give a proposal. And that is, I think, the point of this back and forth, this collage of the law, almost a stream of consciousness here, points to the organic unity of the whole law. Okay? But here, as we think of worship, uniquely, the first four commandments of the law, that is the first table, address directly our vertical relationship with God in what it means to love him, as we read in Deuteronomy 6, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind or our strength. And so, therefore, it makes sense that a sorcerer or sorceress were not to be tolerated, but they were to be subject to death. And you might, will elaborate on this more. You wonder, why don't they mention sorcerer? I think the implication was assumed. A sorcerer would be put to death. Well, what about a lady? What about a woman guilty of the same thing? No exclusion in that case. God's worship, God's call for holiness was such that just like partiality to the poor was not to be given in justice, that in a matter the balance of your bank account did not matter. Right was right, wrong was wrong. So therefore, sorcerer, sorcerers, it didn't matter. And those who sacrificed to any other god but the Lord were to be under the ban, literally devoted to destruction, like the Amalekites in the day. And not The people of God also, they weren't to revile God nor their rulers. Think about that. I think this relates to the third commandment specifically there. But all these, when you look at them, verse 18, verse 20, verses 28 through 31, I believe they all accord with those first four commandments of the law particularly the first three. And then look there in verses 29 and 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep seven days. It shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. The delay in tithes and offerings were the equivalent of failing to worship God rightly. And might we not connect that with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. Or the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy as this peculiar day to not only offer the sacrifices of our praise and thanksgiving as referenced in Hebrews 13, but also out of our material prosperity, our tithes, and our offerings. What even about the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. 
Could we not assume that a delay in our offerings not be the same as stealing? Or even the ninth commandment, in effect, a violation of this commandment, not to bear false witness, to lie, knowing that even as we've come as members of our own church, we've made a commitment to contribute to the support of our church. Well, thirdly, we see that just briefly, and these last two are very brief, I want you to see, thirdly, Israel as a nation was to be marked by faithful justice, and I want you to see the distinction here, faithful justice and compassionate care for those most weak and vulnerable, all right? In verses 21 through 24, 25 through 27, chapter 23, 1 through 3, and chapter 23, 6 through 9, they all emphasize God's concern for both faithful justice and compassionate care. I want you to see the categories of this for a moment. His care for the sojourner, that is those with no home. His care for the poor, that is those with no wealth. His care for the widow, that is those with no husband. And his care for the orphan, that is those who in that day were described as what? Fatherless. The fatherless. And the implication is we or to do no less. In fact, you read there in Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then finally, a fourth and final principle here. We've seen this, right? Israel as a nation was to be marked by, number one, purity and fidelity and sexuality. Number two, purity and fidelity in Yahweh's worship. Number three, faithful justice and compassionate care for those most weak and vulnerable. And then finally, Israel as a nation was to be marked by profound love for enemies within a personal context. Israel as a nation was to be marked by profound love for enemies within a personal context. Look at chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. So remember, this is for the nation as a theocracy. And you have a couple of million people There will be those in conflict. There will be those who have axes to grind. There will be those who have misunderstandings. There will be those who stay at the opposite corner of their community center. And this is true of us. And yet what was Israel to be marked by? This profound love for enemies within a personal context. If you meet your enemy's ox, there's no need to say if you meet your best bud's ox in a ditch. Jesus says, what what does it mean if you love those that love you? 
That matters nothing. How do you respond to those who hate you? And he goes on to say, if you see the donkey of one who hates you. So one whom you regard as an enemy, and then one whom you regard who you believe hates you. And he lays out not a program of feeling, but a program of thoughtful action for what is your neighbor's. And behind that, typically, right, when we commit volitionally to do good to another, our feelings like a caboose, like the last car in a train, will follow. Brothers and sisters, it's hard to do justice to a message called doing justice to social justice, but I hope tonight we've got it started, that we begin to think about how what we've seen impacts our sexuality, how it impacts our worship as the people of God, how it impacts, how it impacts the way we will faithfully express justice and compassionate care for the most weak and vulnerable, not just within the membership of Grace Baptist Church, but within our community more broadly. How will we respond to those who are crying out for help who are in great need, and then finally, how will we respond with profound love for those that we regard as enemies, for those who we believe hate us? Remember, by no works of the law, Paul says in Romans 3, by no works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So kids, I want to just to remind you, the people of God were never called, Israel was never called to obey the Ten Commandments that they might obtain God's favor. But they were called to obey the Ten Commandments because they already had it. You and I, we need what only God can do for us. And that doesn't change the reality that there are the two great commandments. We're to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But this is something that apart from God working in us through the word, by his spirit, we cannot do. And so your prayer, and even if you're listening tonight, I don't care, even on the live stream, The single goal for your life, the quest for your life is to answer the question, how can I be right with God? How can you be right with God? There's only one answer. It's in the words of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And you come in faith, believing. You come bringing nothing but getting everything from the Son of God. Come. Come.